Daniel's final prophecy in this marvelous book, a prophecy that it takes three chapters to cover. An introduction in chapter 10, the prophecy through chapter 11, and the first four verses of chapter 12, and then some concluding remarks. And in this amazing prophecy here, God summarizes what he has been laying out throughout the entire book of Daniel. Multiple times, God has given to Daniel a vision of what is to come, describing the work uh, among various kingdoms and ultimately leading to the final kingdom and its final ruler. And from different angles, God has been looking at this final prophetic event, this time known as the time of the Gentiles, and God has been laying out for Daniel what is to come. In very broad terms and broad ways, and he's been just narrowing it down, getting more specific in each of the prophecies. In each of the prophecies, we get more specific details about the kingdoms and the various kings that come. In each of the prophecies, we get a narrowed focus about that final uh, king, that final ruler, and his opposition. And each time, we get more clarity as to what God has anticipated to come for Israel. So ultimately, what we can see here in Daniel chapter 11 is this. This prophecy, this final prophecy breaks up into two parts. Part 1, from verse 1 through verse 35, is the time from Daniel's time until the coming of Christ, basically. Or just before the coming of Christ. And then from verse 36 through chapter 12, verse 4, is that future coming, that final king, the Antichrist, who is to come. Remember, at this point, when Daniel is receiving this prophecy and he's writing out these details, all of this is still future for Daniel. Not a single event had occurred and wouldn't occur for you know, generations after him. But the particular details that are laid out here are so specific and so clear that there is just a marvelous demonstration of God as he unfolds the events. This is a remarkable account, a a historical account of what is to take place. And you're going to see that tonight. Tonight might be a little different than normal because we're going to look at some historical details and cover historical events and compare them to the passages of Scripture and then see what played out historically. So it may sound more like a classroom than a, a, you know, a sermon, but in this we get to see these marvelous details that God lays out for Daniel in this particular, ver- in this particular section. In fact, what is... Amazing about this section of Scripture is how God fulfills these prophecies so specifically. He is so specific in what He stated that He, he demonstrates again that God and, or, and God alone accomplished these things. In fact, modern liberals are so overwhelmed by this particular chapter in Daniel that they have denied that Daniel wrote this book because there's no way somebody could write this specifically. It had to be somebody in the future. It had to be some event after Daniel that somebody went back, wrote these things down and recorded them and added them to the book because there's no way that somebody could write this specifically about events yet to come. And so the option is either deny that it was from Daniel or except that God is the author of all these things and is accomplishing his good purposes. And obviously, because we accept that, that God, being the author of this very book, 
laying these very things out, having given these very prophecies to Daniel, what we see then is the power of God and the wisdom of God and the knowledge of God on display as he unfolds the events that are unfolded here in this chapter. Now, what I want you to see in this is we head to this chapter. And we start looking at all these details. And verse after verse just unfold with details and historical events unfold. It is remarkably terrifying that if God fulfills all of these prophecies in these first 35 verses so specifically and so exactingly, then what is to come in the final Antichrist is a terrifying expectation. It's absolutely mind-blowing in regards to what God has been promising about this final Antichrist. And you remember, leading up to this point, that Daniel has been informed by God through prophecies that this final ruler who is going to come, who is going to come just like the previous rulers. He's going to come with world domination, like, like Nebuchadnezzar dominating the whole world. He's going to come like Alexander the Great with swiftness taking over. He's going to come ruling with a heavy hand. He's going to come seeking dominion over the whole world. And he's going to come bringing unspeakable atrocities to the people of Israel. Israel has not yet faced all the suffering that is in store for them that they have as a nation been suffering for generations, as a nation has been suffering because of their rebellion, yet there is still more to come. The time of Jacob's trouble is yet ahead. There is a time of great suffering and difficulty, and that is, again, laid out for us in more details in this passage. As if, at this moment, you understand why Daniel chapter 10 started with Daniel in intense prayer for three weeks as he's there praying and fasting and wondering what is to come, he is anticipating what is going to happen for his people Israel. And you remember last week as we were looking at this, when Daniel had been praying in that time, he had expected that Israel, having been freed to return back to their homeland, would just up and leave and there would be this mass return back to Jerusalem, which we found out only was 42,000 people. Kind of a disappointment. You had a million plus of your brothers and sisters around, of your ethnic group, and you thought we get to go back to our promised land and only 42,000 go back? It would be a great disappointment. And Daniel is wondering what is going on. And in that, God sends then this angel to give to Daniel an explanation as to what is to take place. And as this angel comes and gives an explanation of what is to take place, some marvelous details unfold. So let us walk through this text and see these amazing truths that are laid out. Now you remember that concluding of chapter 10, the angel is speaking to Daniel. The angel is, com- is explaining to Daniel what's going on. And he picks up in verse 1 of chapter 11. It is his discussion. He's the one speaking here. This isn't uh, Daniel speaking here. This is the angel speaking to, to Daniel, giving explanation. That's why you may even see within your uh, Bibles it's in quotes because Daniel is quoting what is being said to him by the angel who has come to minister to him, the angel who is going to finish communicating to Daniel the vision and then he's going to go back and help Michael the archangel. So here he says in verse 1 this, In the first year of Darius the Mede, 
I arose to be an encouragement and a protection for him. Again, this is the angel speaking to Daniel. And when he says here, he arose to be an encouragement and a protection for him. The question is, for whom? Well, it's not Darius the Mede. Actually, it goes back to chapter 12, or back to chapter 10 and verse 21. He is to be an encouragement for Michael. Came out here, this angel was to come and to help Michael the archangel in this heavenly battle. You remember last week we talked about this, that we get insight in chapter 10 into the, the heavenly conflict that has taken place. And Michael the archangel is in battle with the prince of Persia as described there in Daniel chapter 10 and verse 13 and verse 21. So that, Daniel, so that this angel, Michael, the archangel, is receiving help from the angel who is now talking. And this angel tells us when this was. This is in the first year of Darius the Mede. This is the year in which Darius had, had or, or which Cyrus had decreed for Israel to return to the land. Ezra chapter 1 and verse 1. This is when this event took place. Now notice verse 2. And now... I will tell you the truth. The, behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. Then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. As soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. Here's the first declaration of events to come. And this angel had predicted that after Cyrus would die, which he died in 529 B.C., there was going to be a succession of four kings. And Persian history confirms this. The first Persian king, now we get to go through a bunch of names that I'm going to have to confidently say wrong. But you can go look them up online, but I'm just going to confidently say them, and I might be completely wrong with some of these, but that's all for our joy. Cambysius from 530 to 522 B.C. was the son of Cyrus. Then the second king, Pseudo-Smyrtus from 522 B.C., he usurped the throne and reigned for a short time. Then there was Darius I, or known as Darius the Great. He, he ruled from 522 B.C. to 486 B.C. And then the fourth king, after Cyrus, would come. And this one, as the text says, he was to be rich. He would raise up the whole empire against the realm of Greece. And he would do something. He would go and he would attack Greece in a way so as to invite a counterattack to him. In fact, we know who this king is. This king is King Xerxes, or known in the book of Esther as Ahasuerus, the son of the previous king, Darius the Great, King Xerxes. Oh, now look at this precision here. Xerxes was the king mentioned here in the book of Esther who had amassed such a great amount of wealth that he inherited from all of his previous kings. Listen to this, Ezra, or, uh, Esther chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. What kind of, what kind of wealth did, did Ahasuerus have? He had this, he reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 prom- provinces, verse 1 says. 
In those days, as King Asarias sat on his royal throne, which was in Susa, the capital, in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his princes and attendants. The army officers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of his provinces being in his presence. Now notice verse 4. He displayed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his great majesty for this for this day, for, for many days, and he says 180 days. So for 180 days, King Xerxes set up a parade for himself to demonstrate the riches of his kingdom and glory, to show off his army, to show off his wealth, to demonstrate to all how powerful he was. And in doing this, he fulfills exactly what Daniel 11 verse 2 says. These Four kings will come, the fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. He had gathered the largest army of the land. He had hundreds and thousands of soldiers. He had a navy with hundreds of ships. And in 480 B.C., he attacked Greece like his father did ten years previously. His father had attacked Greece in the Battle of Marathon, in 490 B.C., and his father had lost in spectacular fashion. So Xerxes was going to go and avenge his father's loss. And he went, and he spent four years preparing for this attack. And in 479, when he began 480, in 479, he was defeated soundly just like his dad. Even though Greece was not the primary world power, they still did not forget that Xerxes had attacked him, and they dwelt on it. How long did they dwell on it? Well, it would be 150 years later that Greece would retaliate for this attack and Alexander the Great would exact his vengeance on them. Notice verse 3. We have first the domain of Persia in verse 2. Now we see the domain of Alexander the Great in verse 3. It says, And a mighty king will, will rise... And he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. This is Alexander the Great, who came in 334 to 323 B.C. And he was the first king of Greece. And he had the power and authority to rule from his father, Philip of Macedon. And he ruled with such power, he was trained and taught by the great philosopher Aristotle, he was a commander of a mighty army, and in between 334 and 330 B.C., he conquered Medo-Persia, Asia Minor, Syria, Egypt, and has gone as far as India. Basically, the whole known world at that time, Alexander the Great conquered. He was undefeated in battle and considered by history as one of the most successful military commanders. And he was, again, chosen as a commander of the Greek forces at the age of 21 and accomplished all of this within 12 years. He had conquered the whole known world. This is the, in verse 3, the great, or, yeah, the great dominion of Alexander the Great. Now from verse 4 through verse 20 is what comes after, the dominion after Alexander the Great. And this is where it gets completely remarkable in the precision and detail of this prophecy. 
the various rulers that would come after Alexander the Great and the various battles and conflicts they would have, the kind of precision that is brought out here is remarkable. Notice verse 4. But as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out towards the four points of the compass, though not to his own descendants, nor according to his authority which he wielded. For his sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others besides them. Now the remarkable detail here is this one will come, he's going to rise up quickly, but as soon as he rises up, he's going to die. He's going to be taken away. And the land taken from him isn't going to be given to his descendants. It's going to be given over to others. And they're not going to rule with the same kind of authority that he ruled with. And that's exactly what happened. Alexander the Great, having quickly risen to power, having quickly taken over, just as quickly died. And from that time, it took 20 years after his death for his kingdom to be split up. There are multiple power struggles among his generals from his death until it was finally divided up. And there were four different generals that were separated in this Grecian empire. And again, we can go back to Daniel chapter 7. We saw this also in Daniel chapter 8. One, you had Ptolemy who ruled over Egypt, Palestine, and Arabia. You have Seleucus who ruled over Syria and Babylon and Mesopotamia. You have Cassander, who ruled over Macedonia and Greece. And then you have Lysimachus, who ruled over Asia Minor. Now, in this chapter, from verse 4 and following, what the Daniel focuses in on, or the angel focuses in on, is two kings. The king of the south and the king of the north. You see those terms brought up. These two kings, the king of the north, the king of the south. There are two particular generals. That is, Ptolemy, who is the king of the south, and Seleucus, who is the king of the north. These are the two kings that are selected. Now you say, why these two kings? Because guess who's right in the middle of these two kings? Israel. You have the king of the north is Seleucus. This is the one above Israel. The king of the south is the Ptolemy kingdom. This is below Israel. Right in the middle is Israel. Two world enemies who end up fighting against each other for hundreds of years caught up in the middle of this conflict is Israel. Amidst this, again, this is the exacting prophecy in for Alexander in verse 4, none of his descendants would take the throne. His half-brother Philip, who was mentally deficient, was murdered in 317 B.C. Alexander's son, who was born to him after he died, was murdered in 310 B.C. And his illegitimate son, Hercules, was murdered in 309 B.C. Every heir, every relationship to Alexander was murdered or taken away, never having the opportunity to take over as a head or as an authority in Alexander's kingdom. And his former kingdom, as he said here in the text in verse 4, never had the same authority in which Alexander wielded. None of the kings that came after had the same authority. None of the rulers operated in the same way that Alexander had operated. And it never regained its same strength. 
Notice verse 5. It says, Then the king of the south, this is Ptolemy, will grow strong along with one of his princes who will gain ascendancy over him and obtain dominion. His dominion will be a great dominion indeed. And again, this is remarkable in this. Because now Daniel starts to focus in on these kings and he starts to focus particularly on these two kingdoms and he's going to go back and forth between these two kingdoms, between the north and the south. And he begins to say here that these two kingdoms, as they were divided, as these two kingdoms were coming together in authority, one was going to grow stronger. Here, the king of the south, the Ptolemy kingdom, would grow strong But he was going to have an associate who was also going to grow stronger with him. And this is the king of the north, the Seleucid ruler. In fact, Seleucid ruler, the king of the north, had a need for Ptolemy to come and help him. He asked for help and Ptolemy came and helped him overcome. And he grew to greater strength as a result of Ptolemy's help. So that ultimately he ended up taking over land that was greater in size than the southern kingdom. And therefore, just as the text says in verse 5, that along with one of his princes will gain ascendancy over him and obtain dominion. As, again, the king of the north grew, his kingdom grew more rapidly than the king of the south. Again, just as it played out. As I said, these were north of Israel and south of Israel. Israel's right in the middle. Just imagine it like this, that we as the United States, if we were right in the middle of a war between Canada and Mexico, as the two were fighting back and forth, they had to travel through your land to march up. And not in a day with planes where they're flying over. They're going to bring their camels and their donkeys and their, and their elephants, and they're going to charge right through your land to go attack one another. That's exactly what's taking place And Israel is right in the middle of it. And Daniel is told in this point, from the rest of this chapter, what we see from verse 5 through verse 35 is this. This is going to be continual conflict for Israel. This is going to be a one-time battle. This is going to be an ongoing, continual battle with continual uh, power plays between these various kings. And that's exactly what plays out through all these verses. These two kings fight on and on, and their kingdoms continue to fight against each other as the next generation rises up and fights against the next generation. Daniel is told the king of the south will grow strong. This is a reference to Ptolemy I, who lived from 323 to 285 B.C. And so where all the Ptolemies get their name, And he was given the authority over Egypt in 323 B.C. and proclaimed as king over Egypt in 304 B.C. But, as it says, one of the princes will gain ascendancy over him and attain dominion. This is reference to Seleucus I, who the Seleucids get their name. And he was, again, this Seleucus was also a general, just like, or one of Alexander's generals. Now, In the midst of all this, as these two are battling, notice verse 6. It says this. After some years, they will form an alliance. And the daughter of the king of the south will come to the king of the north to carry out a peaceful arrangement. But she will not retain her position of power, nor will he remain 
with his power, but she will be given up along with those who brought her in and the one who sired her as well as the one who supported her in those times. Now this is amazing verse here. Ptolemy and the Seleucids fight against each other regularly. Finally, they get tired of it and say, all right, let's just come up with a peace treaty here. Instead of fighting and warring against each other, we will come up with a plan in which we will bring peace between our two kingdoms. I mean, after all, these are the dominant world powers. And in the dominant world powers are going to come into agreement while they can stop the war, live in peace, and be able to grow their kingdoms. And they figure that this will be accomplished through a marriage ceremony. I mean, at this point, if you wanted an ancient history opera, this is it right here, a soap opera. This is it right here between these two kingdoms. Ptolemy decided that he was going to send his daughter to go up and to marry the king of the north. He was going to come and send his daughter up to marry Antiochus or or Seleucus. Actually, so Seleucus had died. His son had taken over. Antiochus I had taken over. Antiochus is now ruling in the north. And the Seleucus' grandson, Antiochus II, or as known as Antiochus Theos, which means God, he is now ruling in the north. He's been ruling there and ruling down in the south, this Ptolemy II. And while they were bitter enemies, they were seeking to reconcile, and they decided to reconcile over an intermarriage. Now get this. At this particular point, if you can just imagine the picture, you have two men who are probably middle-aged, 45 or older, warring with each other and deciding we want peace. So the king of the north decides, and this is Antiochus II, decides, I'm going to divorce my wife, and I'm going to marry the daughter of Ptolemy II. She would have been probably in her 20s. He's marrying his wife if they were of same age. is probably in her 45s or 50s. He's deciding, this is a great plan. I got a lesser model, someone younger. I'll bring her in. We'll bring peace to the land. I'll get rid of my wife. I'll have this newer model of wife, and everything will go well. We'll have peace in our land. And in all of this, what could possibly go wrong? Right? Well... Just as the text predicts here in verse 6. It says, She will not retain her position of power, nor will he remain with his power, but she will be given up along with those who brought her in and the one who sired her as well as he who supported her in those times. She was married off, but that marriage, her name was Bernice, She was married to Antiochus II, but she died. She died because Antiochus II's wife, former wife, murdered her by poisoning her. She poisoned her and poisoned Antiochus II, also poisoned their child. Then she took over as king or set up her son as king of the land, so they took over the northern kingdom. And of course, 
If you're the dad down in the southern kingdom, you're not too happy about that, so you send your army to attack. That's exactly what happens in verses 7 and 8. Notice what the text says. But one of the descendants of her line will arise in his place, and he will come against their army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he will deal with them and display great strength. Also their gods, with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold, he will take into captivity to Egypt, and he on his part will refrain from attacking the king of the north for some years." Bernice's family sets out for revenge. Her daughter, their daughter has been killed, so they're going to avenge their death, her death and the death of her infant son. So as the text says, one of the descendants of her line arose in her place. That is reference to Bernice's brother, Ptolemy III. Ptolemy III rose up, became king, and he went and, and brought vengeance upon the king of the north. He came and he did exactly as verse 7 predicted. He came against the north and he entered into the fortress of the king of the north. He attacked the Syrian army. He killed Laodicees. He killed, the, again, the divorced wife of Antiochus II. He killed as well his sister and he took the treasures from the north back down to the south. And he returned with, when he returned, 40,000 talents of silver, 24,000 gold vessels, and many Egyptian idols. Basically, he went up and brought vengeance, just exactly as the text says. Verse 9, Then the latter will enter the realm of the king of the south, but will return to his own land. After the humiliating defeat at the hands of Ptolemy, Seleucus II came, and he was the king of the north. He tried, or he invaded Egypt in 240 B.C. However, he did not succeed in that, and he had to return back to his own land. He eventually died. Point is, all this, every one of these verses, with exacting detail, God explained what would take place. The war between the kings of the north and the south what would happen when they attempt to make treaties with each other? Those treaties would fall apart. How they would then war with each other. And all again, caught up in the middle, is Israel. Notice verse 10. His son, his sons, will mobilize and assemble a multitude of great forces. And one of them will keep on coming and overflow and pass through. That he may again wage war up to his very fortress. Again, more fighting, more arguing, more bickering back and forth. That what one son couldn't do, the next son would come and seek to accomplish. So you have Seleucus II. Again, this is the king of the south. This Seleucus II came and he fought against Egypt. And they did what they father couldn't do. They mounted several campaigns against Egypt. And they sought to restore the lost prestige of the north. So, yeah, Seleucus was the king of the north, and he sought to come down and conquer the king of the south. And Seleucus III had ruled from 227 B.C. to 223 B.C., but was ultimately killed in a conspiracy against himself, against him. He was followed by his brother, Antiochus III, 
who became the ruler in 223 B.C. at the age of 18 and reigned until 187 B.C. And Antiochus III attacked the Egyptians, uh, Egyptian ruler Ptolemy. Just as, again, verse 10 indicates, this battle continued to go back and forth. Verse 11, the king of the south will be enraged and he will go forth and fight with the king of the north. Then the latter will raise up a great multitude, but that multitude will be given over into the hands of the former. Basically, they're back and forth warring and history plays this out. From basically from 330 B.C. all the way down to 150 B.C., back and forth, they are just warring with each other generation after generation. And you go back into these events. At one time, a group will raise up uh, 70,000 foot soldiers, 5,000 cavalry, 73 elephants, where the other had 62,000 foot soldiers, 6,000 cavalry, and 102 elephants, and they all went out and warred against each other. Point is... Just as God had laid out, there would be constant conflict. Verse 12 and 13. The multitude is carried away. His heart will be lifted up and he will, have, he will cause tens of thousands to fall and yet he will not prevail. The king of the north will again rise with a greater number than the former and after an interval of some years he will press on with a great army and much equipment. Back and forth they fight. Back and forth they go. One rises up, he falls, he rebuilds, and he comes back and fights again. That's what it continues to happen. Verse 14, Now in those times many will rise up against the king of the south. The violent ones among your people will also lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision but they will fall down. What's being stated here is this. Israel is going to get caught up in the mix, says. You have the two kings, the north and the south fighting. They're going back and forth. Caught up in the middle of it is Israel. Israel is being, uh, at this point, moment in time, has the southern tribe, their southern kingdoms controlling them. And they want freedom from that. Israel no longer wants to be under the Egyptian rule, so Israel decides they're going to team up with the northern kingdom. They're going to battle. This is the some of the valiant among them, or some of the violent ones, as verse 14 says. These violent ones, these Jews, are going to join with the northern kingdom, and they're going to try to overthrow the southern kingdom. They're going to try to overthrow Egypt. But, as the text says, they will fall down. And that's exactly what happens. And what happens if you're Israel and you join the losing side? The obvious answer, it's going to cost you. And it did. It cost them dearly. As they were not only punished for their joining the other forces, they were plundered as well and many died. It goes on to verse 16. And all this, again, is in history. She go back and recount the events in specific detail, seeing the rise and the falls of these various kingdoms and this destruction. Verse 16, But he who comes against him will do as he pleases, and no one will be able to withstand him. He will also stay for a time in the beautiful land with destruction in his hand. So what happens is Israel loses. 
They're on the losing side, and they get conquered because they because Antiochus again would be successful, and he would conquer the Ptolemies, and he would demonstrate his rule, and Israel would be here again under as verse sixteen says that they will this king will come and do as he pleases and no one will be able to withstand him and he's going to dwell in the land of Israel the holy land he ends up plundering it verse 17 goes on he will set his face to come with the power of his whole kingdom bringing with him a proposal of peace which he will put into effect He will also give him the daughter of women to run it, but she will not take a stand for him or be on his side. Daniel is told that Antiochus would try to bring peace between Egypt and Syria by giving to him the daughter of women. And this is again exactly what took place. Antiochus gave his daughter Cleopatra not the Cleopatra of the 50 B.C. time, but Cleopatra, his daughter, to marry Ptolemy of Egypt in 192 B.C. And in this, this marriage again was set up for political purposes, but as soon as this wedding was set up and it was encouraged because Rome had pushed for it, This agreement was made in 197 B.C., but actually didn't take place until 193 B.C. And the reason was because Ptolemy was only 10 years old at the time when he was put into this arranged marriage. But it was all set up for this very purpose, so that that there would be an opportunity to overtake Ptolemy to cause Egypt to lose its influence and that would allow the northern kingdom to come in and to take over the southern kingdom. The only problem is, as verse 17 says, at the end of verse 17, she will not take a stand for him. She's not going to be on her father's side. She actually ends up sticking to her husband's side. This is exactly what played out in history. Because the daughter didn't turn her back on her husband. She actually supported her husband and her father's plan fell apart. Verse 18, then he will take his face to the coastlands. Oh, he will turn his face to the coastlands and capture many. But a commander will put a stop to his scorn against him. Moreover, he will soon repay him for his scorn. So Antiochus gets mad that his plan doesn't take place, that he can't take over Egypt. So he turns his attention and he tries to attack Greece again and he tries to gather up all of the, the coastal land in Greece. But the problem is that he runs into the Roman army and the Roman army says, no. They stop it. They defeat him. They send Antiochus back to his land in the north. Antiochus is defeated. Uh, Um, defeated in 191 B.C. is not allowed to take of that land and he is angry and bitter by it. Again, these are exacting details historically played out. Verse 19 and following, he, he says he turns his face towards the fortress of his own land and he will stumble and fall and be found no more. He goes and he plunders his own temple 
He goes and plunders his own land because he needs money to pay for his war and ultimately leads to his demise, just as the text indicates. Verse 20, I know you're getting overwhelmed by all the historical details, but the point is this. When God says it's going to happen, it happens exactly as he says it will happen. He goes on here and describes events in which, again, the, the various people argue and um, fight back and forth, leading up to the kind of final world leader before the Antichrist. And it's in verse 21. Notice 21 and following. It says this, and we'll just read 21 through 35 and wrap up for today, make some comments. Here's what he says. In this, in this place, a despicable person will arise on whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred. But he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. The overflowing forces will be flooded away before him and shattered and also the prince of the covenant. And after alliance is made with him, he will practice deception and he will go up and gain power with a small force of people. In a time of tranquility, he will enter the richest parts of the realm and he will accomplish what his fathers never did, nor his ancestors. He will distribute plunder, booty, and possessions among them, and he will devise his schemes against strongholds, but only for a time. And he will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south with a large army, So the king of the south will mobilize an extremely large and mighty army for war, but he will not stand, for schemes will be devised against him. Stop right there for a second. This king, in verse 21 and following, is Antiochus, Epiphanes, or as the people like to call him, Epimenes, the madman. Antiochus, Epiphanes, the illustrious, would climb up to power, verses 21 through 23. He would come up to power rapidly. He would come up into power by intrigue. He would come up into power by taking over, by taking a spot that he did not have the right to take. He wasn't in line to take of the throne. The one who was in line to take of the throne was arrested and was in Rome. So he, by political intrigue, takes over the throne and begins to operate. And begins to operate in such a way that he demonstrates how despicable he was. That he uses political intrigue to take over and secure authority. How did he do it? Verse 24 describes it, that he, t- he had gained that power by taking plunder or, and taking booty and, and those possessions and giving them out to others. Basically, he was uh, Robin Hood before there was Robin Hood. He would come, steal from the rich, and give all of that to the people, gaining power, and with that power, then gaining greater authority, of which he would then gain in size text goes on and describes and verse 23 21 through 23 is his climb to power verses 24 through 30 is his campaigns against Egypt so this is the king of the north coming down and attacking the king of the south and then he loses ultimately comes to the end of verse 30 much as he tries he can't succeed 
And he gets frustrated, so he turns his attention against his own people. From 30 through verse 35, notice what it says there. For ships of Kittim will come against him. So he is bringing his force to, to attack Egypt, and ships come against him. And these are ships we know historically are Roman ships that come in and tell, tell Antiochus to leave. In fact, the Roman armies had come to Antiochus and said, if you don't stop this, you, we're going to come against you. And Antiochus said, well, give me some time to figure out what I'm going to do. And the general of the Roman army drew a circle around him in the sand and said, okay, do not leave this circle until you make a decision. Ultimately, Antiochus recognized at that point, if I fight against the Egyptians, I'm ultimately fighting against the Romans. I am going against these multiple world powers. There's no way I'd be able to stand. And so he leaves there and heads into, again, a fight against Israel. Notice what verse 31 says. Forces from him will arise, and they're going to desecrate the sanctuary fortresses and do away with the regular sacrifice, and they will set up abomination of desolation. And by smooth words, he will turn to godlessness those who attack or who act wickedly towards the covenant. But the people who know their God will display strength and take action. Those who have insight among the people will give understanding to the many, yet they will fall by sword and by flame, by captivity, and by plunder for many days. And when they fall, they will be granted a little help, and many will join them in hypocrisy. And some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end of time because it is still to come at the appointed time. This is all a description of the rule and the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes. He comes, he enters into Jerusalem, he takes over the temple, he sets up the abomination of desolation, he pollutes the temple. Actually, history records that he puts an image of Zeus in the temple sacrifices a pig on the altar, spreads pig blood around the temple, puts up a Greek games right in the middle where the athletes are running around naked right there in the temple quarters. He desecrates the entire temple and anyone who stands up against him, he kills. He turns the people of God to turn on each other. He actually even promotes uh, apostasy. That if anyone would turn and follow him, he gave them money and riches. So you had the choice. Take money and riches and turn on your God or die. And he killed them. And we do this, as the text indicated here, in order to bring purity. The end of verse 35, or in 35, some of those who have insight will fall. This is the righteous who die. And all this was to happen so that they would... Uh, refine and purge and make them pure until the end of time. Friends, when you look back from verse 1 all the way through verse 35, with all the rise of these kings, the wars back and forth, the exact precision by which every event took place, all that then makes what comes after verse 35 and verse 36 and following, the description of the coming Antichrist, terrifying. 
Because God, if God fulfilled exactly these previous events, what's going to happen in these future events? And I think the transition is right here in verse 35. This will, he will purify them until the end of time because it is still to come at the appointed time. This is the transition. The end of Antiochus until the ultimate Antichrist is the transition. Antiochus is a type of Antichrist. So that you saw this leader come, rise up in power, take over and seek to destroy Jerusalem and bring corruption, and he sets as a type or an example of the Antichrist who is to come. The one who's going to rule as a king, seeking to promise peace, promise prosperity to Israel, but instead what he's going to bring is destruction and corruption. And that is what we'll look at next week as we close the chapter, Antiochus. So, as I look at all this, point out, I just want to point out, when we are looking at these details, God has fulfilled these particular details in exacting precision. We would expect him to continue to do that, even in these final prophecies. As he unfolds exactly what is going to take place, we're waiting for this final event. Why the event? Well, it's just for this reason. God is telling Israel their punishment is much more than simply the captivity of 70 years. It is the time of suffering under the reign of the Gentiles that they're going to go through until the final suffering comes at the hands of the Antichrist, all for the very purpose of verse 35, that they would bring purity, that there would be a time of purity, the separating the true from the false so that God's people would return back to him. And that's what we will see when we come to the end of Daniel's prophecy. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for these amazing truths and there's just so much that is going on that we are overwhelmed at the specifics But we rejoice that history again unfolds exactly as you had given to Daniel the prophet, that you carried out your plans specifically, and you fulfilled each and every one of these prophecies exactly as they were declared, even to the point of how certain battles were were done. So we pray, Father, may our confidence in the scripture be more that we trust in your very word, that we are not looking to our own wisdom and understanding, but we are looking to your scriptures to understand your purposes and plans so that we wouldn't doubt your truth, but instead would have more confidence in it each time we come to your holy word. And we ask, Father, even now as we anticipate the events to come with the Antichrist, that we pray that your people would turn and respond to you, that those who are called by your name would have faith and believe upon you. For certainly we believe, as Christ said, that, that if it was possible, that the Antichrist would even be able to deceive the elect. For we know that time of destruction will be that filled with lies and filled with hypocrisy. So protect your people Preserve their hearts and prepare them for that day so that we would be able to stand and give you all glory. And ultimately, Father, we're thankful that even as Jesus taught us, that as we pray, we pray, protect us from the evil one. For we know that there are hostile forces that are opposed to you and your purposes that are violently seeking to destroy. 
And so we pray, Father, guard us in this season so that however you would use us, it would ultimately use for your glory and your honor. Thank you for this study. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.